This morning is our final look at the book of Colossians. We've been working our way through Colossians over the course of the past group of months, and uh, today we're finishing up our look at Colossians by looking at verses 12 through 18 of Colossians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to take a look at this portion of Scripture in a very similar fashion to how we looked at the previous verses, because last week as we were looking at, at uh, the verses that came right before this, you saw a list of names. We kind of worked our way through those names and saw some of the ways that the Lord had used some of those individual people. And, and you're going to see in this portion of Scripture that the way this book ends, it ends with a, a, a reference to a group of people as well. And so we're going to highlight them and, and really focus on one particular overall theme that I think is emphasized as their names are, are brought up one at a time. We're going to be talking about this idea of ministry, and specifically related to us, this idea of what does it look like to fulfill the ministry that the Lord gives to you? And maybe even for some of us, it might involve just kind of wrestling through the question whether or not we actually believe that the Lord has given to each and every one of us a ministry. And so I'm going to do my best to, to demonstrate that he absolutely has. But if you would take your Bibles and open up to Colossians 4, and we're going to start with verse 12, and it begins right away with a name, Colossians 4, verse 12, and I'm going to read down to verse 18. This is what it says. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege today to be able to look at your word together and to read the things that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down at the end of the book of Colossians. And Lord, we're grateful for the people that he lists. We're grateful for the examples that they are to each and every one of us living in our generation. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture today, we pray that you would inspire us. We pray that you'd give us ideas and that you'd help us to understand the ways in which you delight to work in the hearts and in the lives of those who are fully submitted over to you. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you've given us new life through your son, Jesus Christ. And this isn't a life that we're just supposed to observe or just kind of sit around or, or, or maybe just use to analyze the work that other people are doing. But Lord, you've called us and you've equipped us to be actively serving and actively working to glorify your name. So Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word together today, as we think about the names that are mentioned here, we pray that we would be reminded of the work that you've done in these lives through your son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry that you gave to each of these people, and the fact that you've given us a ministry as well. And by your grace, we pray that we would fulfill it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So throughout the years, one of the phrases that I've often heard used for someone who serves as either a vocational pastor or a vocational missionary is the phrase, in the ministry. So you hear someone referred to as being in the ministry. Now, I certainly understand why that phrase is used, and I don't actually even have any major problems with, with using that phrase, but there is a limit to using that phrase as it's typically used that I'd, I'd like to just invite us to think about for just a second. To describe those who serve in vocational ministry as in the ministry, I think it's totally fine as long as we're also willing to acknowledge that every Christian can be in the ministry, whether their form of service is vocational or not. And what I mean by that is this, I believe every believer has been entrusted with the ministry from the Lord. And it's a ministry that the Lord wants us to focus on during the course of our earthly lives, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, He has indeed entrusted you with a ministry. And it's a stewardship. It's something that He's given over to you to accomplish during the course of your life. I think Scripture is very clear that all believers, without exception, have been supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve other people. And I'll defend that statement by reading from 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just read to you a few verses from 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7, but there it says this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So again, think of that statement for a second. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Meaning God demonstrates His presence in your life, and He does that in each of us. And He does this for the common good. He gives us the opportunity to serve one another. He doesn't say to some or to a select few is given the manifestation of the Spirit, but it says to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But here's what I've been noticing over the, the past few decades since I've started serving in church leadership. So while Scripture is very clear that, that all believers are gifted to serve others, supernaturally gifted, not just naturally gifted, but supernaturally gifted, only a portion of, of the church believes that they have been gifted. And only a segment of the portion that believes that they're gifted is actively utilizing the gifts that they've been given. So why do you suppose that's the case? And maybe a follow-up to that would even be, what could be done about that? So why is that the case and what, what can we do about it? Well, I'm convinced that many of us spend too much time talking ourselves out of doing what God has called us and equipped us to do. I actually think we spend a lot of time talking ourselves out of it. And usually it works out like this. I think we let our insecurities get the best of us. And I think sometimes we hold back from kind of sticking our neck out there to serve in a particular way because we're convinced that somebody else can do a better job at whatever that thing is than we can. We're convinced that there's somebody that can do a better job, and because we're convinced that there's someone that could do a better job, we think, you know what, I better hold back from using the gifts that the Lord's given me because there's someone who could probably do it better. But the reality is, in most cases, the reason someone might actually be able to do a better job is because they've been gaining practice using their gift for a long period of time instead of waiting for somebody else to do it. So it's kind of an ironic situation that we find ourselves in. 
And here's the thing, and maybe this will relieve some of us if we, if we kind of wrestled with that insecurity of maybe somebody being able to do a better job than us. Here, here's the thing. Only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. We are all works in progress. So relieve yourself of the thought that you have to do a perfect job at whatever the Lord's called you to do. Actually, don't have to do a perfect job at it. Just start aiming to do a faithful job in a joyfully obedient way as the Lord empowers you to do so and opens up doors for you to use the gifts that he's given to you because you have a ministry. And whether you realize it or not, Scripture, I think, illustrates it in a variety of ways, but one of the ways that I'm convinced that the Lord uses a portion of Scripture like what we're looking at today is the Lord gives us some specific examples with a little bit of a context to show us how he has equipped people in the past. And I think one of the useful things that that we can find when we look at a portion of Scripture like this from Colossians 4 is sometimes somebody that we could look at and say, you know what, I'm kind of like that person. I can see the ways that the Lord gifted that person. I think I'm kind of like that person. And when you become convinced that the Lord was able to use regular people like us in a previous generation, it, it starts begging the question, well, why couldn't he do that now? Well, of course he could do that now, and in fact, he is doing that now. And I think that's one of the things that I think we will find encouraging as we look at these final people that Paul brings up as he closes this portion of Scripture. I actually think it's very, very encouraging to to read this and to think about this and just kind of apply it to our day-to-day lives and our circumstances. And one of the people that he brings up here is somebody that, you know, there are certain people that you, you look at in Scripture and you think, oh, you know, in heaven I get to meet that person. Well, he brings up somebody here that I actually am looking forward to meeting, somebody I, in my mind, I feel like I have a lot of respect for, a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras was somebody who felt called of God to invest in the spiritual maturity of other people. Is that something that you've ever felt a calling to do, to invest in the spiritual maturity of other believers? Look at what it says in Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13. Let me reread those verses. But Paul here references Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Let me pause there for just a second and just kind of give a little bit of a recap on Epaphras because maybe you've noticed that his name came up elsewhere in our study of the book of Colossians. But Epaphras is a man I have a high degree of respect for. He's actually mentioned right at the start of this letter, and he's referenced again here now in Paul's closing words. But keep in mind who Epaphras was. Epaphras was the guy who planted the church at Colossae. It's believed that Epaphras was the guy that planted this church. Epaphras had heard the the message of the gospel that the apostle Paul was preaching in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul was preaching in Ephesus and Epaphras heard the message of the gospel, his heart was warmed. He realized that that message was something that he needed to understand, that he needed to, to respond to that. And he trusted in Jesus Christ. And he thought, all right, this is not something that I can just keep to myself. This is not something that I could keep secret. This is not something that I could just keep as a piece of intellectual knowledge in the back of my mind somewhere. I've got to go back home. I've got to go back home to my friends and my family, people that I want to see experience this very thing, this gift of salvation that I've experienced. I've got to go back, and I've got to tell them too. And so he returned back to his home city of Colossae to share the message with others. 
And it's also very likely, by the way, that in, in addition to planting this church there and being highly invested in the growth of the, of the believers at Colossae, it, it's highly likely that it was Epaphras that was the one that the Lord used to prompt the Apostle Paul to write this letter because Epaphras came to visit the Apostle Paul while he was under this uh, imprisonment, this home imprisonment uh, in Rome. And Epaphras comes to him and he's like, all right, here's how everything's going in Colossae. Here are the strengths and the weaknesses of the church, but here are some of the things that they're wrestling with from a doctrinal standpoint. We're new Christians. There's certain things we don't understand, and there's some false teaching that's been circulating through the city and impacting believers in the church. How do I respond to this? And so the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Paul the words to write that we see in this portion of Scripture, in this book, to help these young believers in their walk with Christ, and I think also maybe to clarify some of these things for Epaphras as well. But I look at Epaphras, I get excited about the ways in which the Lord used him, but I also just want to ask the question, what motivated a man like Epaphras to dedicate his life to serving Christ and the church the way that he did? Well, again, Epaphras was the kind of guy who was grateful for the grace that Christ had shown him. Because he was so grateful for the grace that Christ had shown him, he couldn't wait to make the gospel known to others as well because he wanted them to experience that same grace. He wanted them to come to that same understanding that he had. And then as others grew in their walk with Christ, I think he rejoiced over that, and he stayed personally invested in their ongoing growth. So he was enthusiastic about telling the message of the gospel to his friends and family, but he was also enthusiastic about remaining faithful to be invested in their ongoing growth. He wanted to see the church experience true spiritual maturity. I like that this man's heart. I like seeing this. This is the type of thing, I think we understand this in a variety of ways. We, in the local church level, we certainly understand this. I think that there are also examples of this in the family sphere, you know, in our day-to-day life as we're trying to help our, our, our children grow in their walk with Christ. But you don't have to answer this out loud. I just kind of want to throw this out there mainly just as a curiosity question for you to wrestle with in your own mind. But just out of curiosity, which excites you more? So just answer this in your own mind. Which, it's, which excites you more? Seeing someone come to faith in Christ or watching a new believer press on towards spiritual maturity? Which excites you more? Seeing someone come to faith in Christ or watching a new believer press on towards spiritual maturity. And by the way, even as I ask that question, I do want us to wrestle with that just a tiny bit at least. Um, It might not even be a fair question to ask, right? Because it's very hard to draw a line between those two things. We probably value both. I don't know that I'd be able to draw a very stark line between those two things because in many respects you could look at that and say, it's like two sides of the same coin. But I ask that for a particular reason, just to prompt some thought in your head, because if one of those seems particularly exciting to you, maybe even more so than the other, and you feel highly motivated to either participate in sharing the gospel where it is not known, or going deep where the gospel is known, but helping people develop spiritual maturity, I bring that up because that might be a question worth asking if you're trying to discern the unique way in which God has called you to serve in ministry. Because there are believers that he releases into this world to do both. And some people you look at and you say, boy, that person is just a gifted evangelist. 
Then there are others you look at and you just say, boy, that person is just so gifted at discipling people and helping them grow in their faith. They're both great. They're both wonderful. Maybe the Lord's gifted you in one of those areas, and maybe that's something that will give you opportunity to actually employ. Now, there's somebody that, that, you know, when we think, by the way, when you think of an evangelist, what do you think of? Think of an evangelist. Think about that as I show you the next name. The next name that, that Paul brings up here is actually Luke. And think about Luke and how the Lord gifted him and what he did. Luke was gifted with, with participating in evangelism in a variety of ways. And two of the ways that Luke participated in evangelism were through offering medical care and then also through the written word. So look at what it says here in verse 14. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. That's a very short verse, but I want you to just think about Luke for just a second. Have you ever met someone in your day-to-day life who seems to operate on a high level in multiple areas? You ever meet somebody like that? They just seem to operate on a high level in multiple areas, and you think, boy, that person's super impressive. I think a couple contemporary examples might be people like Shaquille O'Neal. You know, when I look at Shaquille O'Neal, I don't know if you like Shaquille O'Neal or not. I I think Shaquille O'Neal is one of my my uh, just I just enjoy Shaquille. All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say I just enjoy him very much. But I, I look at Shaquille and I see somebody who has excelled at basketball. And then you look at what he's done in his life since basketball, and he's excelled at business. And you're like, okay. And then on top of that, he's also excelled at broadcasting by not being a typical broadcaster, but being a relatable broadcaster. So basketball, business, broadcasting, everything would be, maybe bowling will be next. I don't know, another, another B. It wouldn't surprise me. He seems like he's good at multiple things. Or a name that I hear all the time right now, how about someone like Elon Musk? You know, you see Elon Musk, what has he excelled at? Well, he's excelled at finance. You ever use PayPal? He helped get that started years ago. You know, he's also excelled at manufacturing. Maybe some of you drive a Tesla or know somebody who does. Doesn't he also send, uh, like, rockets all over the place, you know? So rocket science. He's kind of excelling at a lot of areas, right? And now and then, in this world, you meet somebody who seems to operate on a high level in multiple areas, not just one area, but multiple areas. And during the the era of the early church, I get the impression that Luke was one of those unique people who seemed to operate on a very high level in multiple areas. So we know, and Paul even addresses this here, the fact that, that Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, and Scripture makes it clear to us that, that Luke traveled with Paul, and Luke would use those abilities that the Lord had given him to minister to Paul and minister to others. I think Paul was ministered to by Luke in particular after times when he was beaten or after times when he was injured or times when he was ill. You know, you can imagine the conditions that he was in sometimes during some of these imprisonments. But Luke, in addition to being somebody who was um, just a, 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 a thorough physician who delighted to care for other people in their needs. He was also a very careful writer. He was a very careful historian. And uh, I've probably mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. And I want you to just think about this in regard to Luke, especially if you're someone who's thankful for having access to the New Testament. Because Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else 
including the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote more individual letters, but Paul's letters are much smaller than what Luke wrote. Luke wrote more words of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul did. So it's kind of interesting to think about how much time the two of these guys spent together. And a large segment of the New Testament was written by these two guys, but Luke wrote a little bit more. And all you have to do is just look at the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the longest books in the New Testament, and then the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, two of the long books in the New Testament, and Luke wrote them. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write these things down. And so I look at Luke, and I think his example is fascinating. And I think in many respects, you could look at Luke and say, all right, this guy was an evangelist, but his his evangelism was often carried out in ways that that I don't know that we typically think of evangelism as being carried out in these particular ways. He was helping people with medical needs. This was part of his ministry. He was helping people with medical needs. Uh, Maybe some of you use that as an open door to to help share the message of the gospel. I'm friends with a man. He, He lives in Wisconsin, but he frequently takes trips to the Dominican Republic where he does dental care. He's a retired dentist at this point. He recently sold his practice, but he goes to the Dominican Republic, and, uh, you know, for the glory of Christ, he helps people with their dental needs. And so here you see Luke helping people with the needs that a physician would help people with, but he also would take time in the midst of everything else he was doing to give detailed historical accounts of the life of Christ and the work of the early church, how the Holy Spirit was inspiring the early church to do things and to grow and and again, I think most of the times when we think about evangelism, we, we have some sort of a mental picture. If someone describes an evangelist to you, you might have a mental picture of maybe somebody standing in a tent full of people, preaching to people, and that's certainly one way that evangelism has been carried out. But here, again, I look at Luke and I think of him as an evangelist. I see him as somebody who is involved in, in using medical care and writing as powerful tools for evangelism. When they're used to glorify Christ, when they're used properly, powerful tools and Luke was happy to use these things as a way to make, make the gospel known. Luke did not shy away from doing the work that the Lord had given him to do. But did you notice another name that Paul mentioned in that same line where he references Luke? And by the way, I'm not holding this, someone, this person up as, as an example to emulate. But in that same line, Paul here says, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now, I'm not highlighting Demas as an example for us today for a particular reason. Paul mentions Demas in this passage, but he mentions Demas elsewhere in Scripture as well. Now, at this point, I guess Demas seemed committed to ministering to others for the glory of Christ. He was serving with Luke. He was serving with Paul. But we know from elsewhere in Scripture that that eventually changed. And we're actually told in 2 Timothy 4.10 that Demas eventually deserted Paul. And Paul says, here's why Demas deserted. He was in love with this present world. That's how he described Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. He says he was in love with this present world. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what will be said about you, and I don't know what will be said about me when our time on earth is done. But I can tell you that by the grace of God, I hope it can't be said of any of us that, that, we, that we love this world more than we love the Lord. I hope that we could make it to the end of our earthly lives and have it be able to be said of us that we were faithful to the ministry that the Lord entrusted to us and that we were not tempted 
by the false promises of, of, of pleasures in this world or the things of this world that seem so tempting to us that we looked at the, the opportunity Christ was giving us and we said, you know what, I choose the world over the eternal. And unfortunately, Demas, I think at one point, looked at the things of God and saw some value in that and he thought, yeah, that seems appealing. But when it came down to it, when the pressure was really on, eventually he was like, you know what, I just, I just love the things of this world. And he abandoned the Apostle Paul and unfortunately is remembered as someone who did that. But Luke was faithful to the ministry that God had given to him. And he evangelized through offering medical care. He evangelized through the written word. Just want you to think about that. You know, some of you may be really gifted in the area of mercy in particular and could use medical care as a way that you serve other people in Christ's name. Or maybe some of you are just gifted writers. The Lord gives you the opportunity to write, write and glorify his name that way. But maybe you're not either of those. Maybe you're not somebody that, that likes medical things. Maybe you're not somebody that enjoys writing. Here's another option. Paul brings up a woman named Nympha, and Nympha's ministry was offering hospitality, and she would actually host the church in her home. The way it's phrased in verse 15 is this. Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Hospitality is a ministry that clearly matters to the Lord. In fact, when you look throughout Scripture, we're given examples of how the Lord uses hospitality and inspires people to be hospitable and he does this so that people are ministered to in a variety of ways. And by the way, Scripture, if, if any of you aspire to be in a, in a position of church oversight, church leadership, Scripture also makes it abundantly clear that if we are unwilling to show hospitality, we should not be approved to serve as an overseer of the church. That's mentioned several places in Scripture, Titus 1.8 being one of them. Some believers are genuinely gifted in this area of hospitality. It would be a genuine gift. Now, we don't know much about Nympha, right? We read this sentence, we look at, at the brief example that's given to us of her, and we don't really know much about her. She's mentioned in this passage, but we aren't given a bunch of details of her life, so we don't know if she was maybe a quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of person. That's certainly possible. Uh, we don't know if she was a good cook, but sometimes I, I look at this, and sometimes people that are very hospitable tend to also value that. I think of this every time we have the men's group at, at uh, Ed's house. You know, I, I look at that, and I'm like, Ed's all, like, if I ever make the mistake of eating dinner before we go to the men's group, I have made a bad mistake, because Ed's going to look at me, and he's going to be like, you're going to need to eat more, because I've either prepared more or purchased more. And I not only eat to my heart's content when I'm at the men's group, uh, but I also end up bringing plates of food home for my family almost every time as well. And so I look at that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you have the gift of hospitality. Thank you for using that. Um, and I, I, look at, I look at Nympha here, and I, I think, I don't, was she a good cook? Would not surprise me if she was. And even if she was a bad cook, she probably thought she was a good cook and liked feeding everybody anyway. I'm guessing, Right. All I really know about her is that she looked at her home and she's like, this isn't something that exclusively belongs to me. This is something that belongs to the Lord. This is something that is the Lord's. This is a home that the Lord has entrusted to me, and I'm going to use it to glorify Him. Now, some people in this world grumble at the thought of being hospitable. But I look at Nympha here, and I think Nympha was the type of person that considered it an opportunity to honor Christ and to serve His people. 
And keep in mind, centuries before it became common for the church to own their own buildings and own their own meeting houses, believers used to primarily meet in homes. It wasn't until like the third century before it started to become common for the, the church to actually own collective property that they owned together. They weren't really doing that. They weren't really meeting in these, these set-apart buildings. They were meeting primarily in homes and in public places for centuries in that early season of the church. And one of these homes that was utilized in the early days of the church as the church was growing was Nympha's home. And so have you ever considered the fact that hospitality, the hospitality that you show to other people in the name of Christ, might actually be an important tool that the Lord chooses to use in His eternal plan to build the church. Did He ever put that kind of weight or significance on your willingness to be hospitable with your home or with your food, or what the Lord entrusts to you? Do you ever think of it from an eternal perspective and realize that this is one of the ways that He intentionally gifts people? And in fact, that's, you know, when you look at the early centuries of the church, this is a big part of how the church was growing during that era. As people opened up their homes, it's that big of a deal. And here you have Nympha, not much is said about her, but one important thing is said about her, that a church met in her house. I love that. How about this? Another name that Paul brings up here, as he's winding down, as he's coming to the end, brings up Archippus. When I look at Archippus, there's something really useful here that I hope that you'll remember, and it's something that I need to hear as well. I think we need to keep pressing on, even if our enthusiasm starts to wane, and I think that the Apostle Paul illustrates this in the way he speaks to Archippus. But he says this here, he says in verse 16 and verse 17, he says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, I'm going to mention something about that letter in just a second. But he also says here, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, when Paul and the other church leaders of his day, when they wrote letters to the churches, those letters were often copied and then those letters would be circulated and shared with others so that they could be read out loud when the church would gather together in homes for worship or in gather, gathering together in public places for worship. They'd take those letters, they would read them out loud, and then people would discuss and contemplate the things that were being mentioned in those letters. And that's how this letter was used, by the way, the, church that he wrote to the, or the letter he wrote to the church at Colossae. And he also mentions another letter here, a letter that he wrote to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was only a group of miles, maybe about 10 miles, maybe even less from Colossae. And some believe that the other letter that Paul is referencing here, this letter he says that, that was for the church at Colossae, some people actually think that that's the letter that we refer to as Ephesians, because Ephesians, it's believed, was a letter that, that we tend to think of it as written to the believers at Ephesus, but it's believed that it was a letter that was meant to be circulated to many churches. And so some people theorize maybe the letter he's referencing here is the letter that we tend to call Ephesians. And there's certainly a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians, and both of those letters were written at the same time. So I think that there might be some weight to that theory. But if that's not the letter he was referencing, then he must be referencing something that he wrote to the church at Laodicea that's not included in the New Testament. But regardless, he wanted these things read in both places. Now, I'll give you a little insight if you ever choose to write something in our present day and if you ever publish it. Uh, when I wrote my most recent book, 
I had to do something different that I wasn't asked to do with my previous books. I had to ask some of the people that I mentioned in it, so I mentioned people from different seasons of my life, people that I grew up with, people that I know now. Um, I had to ask those people, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, depending on the story that I told in the book, I had to ask them to sign a release, like a legal paper release that allowed me to use their name in that book. And uh, I thought it was just kind of interesting. You know, I didn't say anything bad about anybody, you know, pretty careful about that. Um, but that's a common practice when you're writing a book in this era. If you use somebody's name as you write it, typically you have to get a release that, unless they're a public figure. They have to sign off on that. And I think about that when I read a portion of Scripture like this in the Bible, the best-selling book of all time, and you look at how Paul writes things as the Holy Spirit inspires him to do so, and he doesn't shy away from calling people out by name. He does it over and over and over again. And sometimes it's in a positive way, and sometimes it's in a way that you would say, oh, that seems kind of negative. And then in other times, it's in a way that he's just saying, hey, brother or hey, sister, step up. Sometimes it's just like a way to challenge or nudge somebody. And in this passage, he gives that nudge. He gives the nudge to Archippus. He gives him a little push. He mentions him by... And by the way, imagine this if you were... If you were if you're Archippus and this letter is being read to the assembly as believers are gathered together and you don't know ahead of time that your name is mentioned in it and then he gets to the part where he starts talking about you and he says, oh, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Could you see Archippus? Be like, okay, <laughs> little, little bit of accountability, right? Slightly, slight amount of accountability. Paul wasn't waiting for legal approval to, uh, to mention Archippus' name, right? He calls him out. He calls him out by name. Now, we don't know very much about Archippus. Some, believe, some people believe that he might have been a Roman soldier who became a follower of Christ because he's referenced as a soldier elsewhere in Scripture. There's also some speculation that, that he was Philemon's son because the portion of Scripture where he's referenced that way is also in the greeting to Paul's letter to Philemon, which, again, was also written at the same time. So he's mentioned in that portion of Scripture. So some people think maybe he was Philemon's son. We don't know. Regardless of who he was, he had an important part in the work of God's kingdom. And in fact, I actually get the impression that he may have been going through a season where his enthusiasm for the work that the Lord had entrusted to him that maybe it was start, starting to wane a little, and Paul was trying to help motivate him to, to get serious about that work once again. I think that's a very useful thing to ponder, especially in the context today of us talking about fulfilling the ministry that the Lord gives to us. And I will confess to you, this is probably not a shock, but I will confess to you that there have been many seasons throughout the years where I have felt somewhat weary of doing the work that the Lord has called me to do. Just in my own humanity, just feeling sometimes a little tired, sometimes a little weary. And I can even confess to you that along the, the course of the way over the past 25 years since I've been serving in this role, there have been stretches of time where I genuinely wrestled with whether or not it was actually time to throw in the towel. Genuinely wrestled with some of those things during certain stretches. And I thought, boy, oh boy, like I don't, I don't know if I could do it anymore. And you might feel the same way in the role that the Lord calls you to, to do your best to fulfill. That's not uncommon. 
So when the Lord calls us and when he gifts us in any particular way to serve, what I think that we need to have in our heart to do, even as we look at the way in which Archippus is being challenged here, I think we need to just stick with it. Unless the Lord changes our assignment or calls us home to be in his presence. If he changes your assignment, that's fine. Sometimes he does that. But if he hasn't made it clear that he's changed your assignment, ask him for strength. Surround yourself with people that you can talk to that that are helpful to kind of give you that boost. I see Paul trying to give Archippus that boost here. Because there are going to be times that you're just feeling you know, great guns, right? You're just going to feel all into it and all enthusiastic and it's all you can think about. And then there are other times that you're going to look at the, the things that the Lord asks you to do and you're going to almost feel like whining to him. Be like, Lord, I'm tired. I'm really, really tired. Even when I look at the ministry of, uh, the earthly ministry of Christ, God come in the flesh, what did Jesus frequently do? Sometimes he'd just take a little time off by himself, go up to a mountainside, some quiet, some rest, prayer and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, and then come back re-energized and serve another day. And I think that that's useful for us by way of example. And I get the impression that maybe Archippus was just feeling a little tired, or there could have been something else going on. We don't really know, but for whatever reason, Paul looks at this and he's like, listen, Keep pressing on even if your enthusiasm starts to wane. This isn't just about, you know, we, put it this way. One of the things that you notice about people in this world that tend to be mature is that they can make good decisions even if they don't feel like it. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever see certain people that you're like, yeah, I could tell that they don't feel like doing this but out of a sense of loyalty or out of a sense of obligation or out of a sense of calling, they say, I'm going to do the right thing, even though in a moment of time, I may not feel like doing the right thing. But then the immature among us, what do they do? I don't feel like it. And then their feelings become their idol. And everything they do, it has nothing to do with loyalty or commitments or calling it's their whole life is being governed by what they feel like in any given moment. That is not a mark of spiritual maturity, and it's not a mark of social maturity either. But I think Paul was trying to remind Archippus, listen, it's not about how you feel all the time. It's not negating your feelings. Feelings are real. But there's more to us than that. You've got a head, too. You've got hands as well, and you've got a heart. Keep them balanced as the Holy Spirit empowers you to do the thing that the Lord's called you to do. There's one other name Paul brings up here, and I think it's really useful, even in light of you know, this idea of, of maybe sometimes doing what you're, you're called to do, even if you're not always feeling like it. Here you have Paul's example in verse 18. It's the last thing he writes in this book. We have Paul that I think is an example of lovingly leading even if it costs you your freedom. The way he phrases it here in verse 18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul concludes this letter. You know, he winds it down here. It's the last thing he says in this passage. And as he does that, he wants to use these words here to help the church to understand a few important things. And first of all, 
one of the things that he tries to do here is, is just make it clear to them, look, this letter's actually from me. So he signs this letter in his own handwriting so that they confirm that it's not fabricated because one of the issues that they were dealing with in Colossae was false teaching, and one of the tactics that false teachers during that generation seemed to like doing was circulating false letters that weren't actually from church leadership or weren't actually from apostles, and they would circulate it, and they'd be like, oh, look at the thing we have here. This is clearly written by the Apostle Paul, and we're pass this on, and then they'd cause people to, to believe things that weren't accurate or weren't true. And so Paul here is saying, look, to prevent that, notice the writing here, right? I write this greeting with my own hand, my own hand. Compare it to other things you have for me. I write it with my own hand. So he's doing this in an, a, a way, I think, of authenticating what he sent to them. But in the midst of that, look at the last sentences that he says here. Two things. He says, remember my chains, grace be with you. So Paul wanted them to remember his chains and the grace of God. His chains and the grace of God. When you look at Paul's life, when you look at his ministry, he was willing to take a leadership role in the early church era when it wasn't safe to do so, even though it often cost him his freedom, including at the moment when he was writing these words. He's saying, remember my chains, what's he talking about? Hey, I'm writing this to you from prison. I'm under home confinement right now. I'm being guarded. Remember my chains. But he was willing to endure that because he knew that earthly freedom isn't the ultimate freedom. Earthly freedom isn't the ultimate freedom. He was looking forward to the ultimate freedom that he had in Christ. Paul had been set free from the chains of sin. Paul had been set free from the, the chains of death through the grace of Jesus Christ. So he was able to look at these earthly chains as a momentary inconvenience. And I think that that's a useful example for you and I as well. We are set free from the chains of sin. We are set free from the chains of death through faith in Jesus Christ. So we can look at our earthly setbacks or even a momentary loss of freedom. We can look at that and say, you know what? This is a momentary inconvenience because I know the eternal freedom that I actually have in Christ Jesus that will never be taken away from me. And I think that's just a good and useful thing for us to dwell on in the midst of setbacks. I think it's a good and useful thing for us to dwell on in the midst of adversity. Fulfill the ministry the Lord gives to you, knowing that He has something better in store. And in the end, I think we'll be glad that we followed the Lord's leading. In the end, I think we'll be glad that we followed the Lord's direction. You will never regret doing what He calls you to do. You'll never regret serving those He calls you to serve in an ultimate way. And I can tell you without reservation, I could promise you this from my reading of Scripture and also from my personal experiences, that obedience to the Lord in this manner, obedience to the Lord in fulfilling the ministry that He gives to you is always worth it. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for allowing us to look at a passage like this and allowing us to spend some time over the course of the past few months reading through the counsel that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down as he wrote this letter to the church at Colossae. Lord, it's fascinating to look at these things and to realize just how useful and how practical they are for us living in this era as well. Lord, there are all sorts of things that we wrestle with, all sorts of things that we struggle with. There are all sorts of things that come our way, forms of adversity, forms of challenge, momentary losses of freedom, inconveniences, seasons of weariness, 
people that abandon the work, all sorts of things that come our way. And then we look at a portion of Scripture like this and we realize we are not the first and not the last to experience these things. And yet, Lord, it's so amazing to look at our, just to, to look at ourselves, and I highly doubt that any one of us gathered together right now thinks that in the scheme of history we're anything special. We're people just like the generations that came before us and just like the generations that come after us. And yet, and that humility is a wonderful thing. So, Lord, I do pray that you'd give us humility that comes from you. But at the same time, we pray that it would be biblical humility where we see ourselves exactly as we are in your eyes. Not this idea of speaking down to ourselves, but just simply seeing ourselves as we actually are. And when you look at us, you don't look at us as people who are useless. You look at us as people that you paid the greatest price to redeem. And you look at us as people that you have joyfully equipped to accomplish a mission during a brief season of time that we've been given to walk this planet. So Lord, we pray that when we think about this concept of ministry, that we wouldn't think about it as something that's just for those that are that have some sort of credential, or those that are vocationally serving in some way, that we would look at a list like this and realize that this is a a way that you were calling believers of all stripes to use the gifts that they were doing, and then to just partner together so that the message of your gospel was proclaimed and people were served in the midst of that generation. And so, Lord, we, thank, we just thank you for examples that we see in the lives of these people, people like Epaphras and people like Nympha and Archippus, people like Luke, people like Paul. We even thank you, Lord, for Demas. I know at one point he was moving in a good direction, and then it seemed like he was really tempted by the things of this world. And so, Lord, some of these examples that you give to us in your word are cautionary to remind us not to go in that direction. And Lord, if we do end up going in that direction for a season, we pray that you'd help us to see it and repent of it and get right back on track. Lord, I pray for anyone in our midst or anyone who may be hearing these words today that might be feeling weary. Lord, at times I've gone through seasons like that. I know there are others gathered together with us today that have experienced seasons of weariness. I know that as I interact with others that are serving in a variety of forms of ministry, that there are seasons that that weariness seems to be the theme of the day. And Lord, we just pray that we would rely on you for the strength that you give to us, that we wouldn't let our lives be governed by what we feel in any given moment, but that we would have a sense of calling and a sense of, of joyful duty that you've given to us that is higher than what our emotions feel like in any given moment. We pray that we wouldn't let our lives be governed by what sometimes feels like just a, a, a form of temperamental immaturity that we're all prone to in one degree or another. But Lord, thank you so much for giving us opportunities to serve. Thank you for putting people in our lives. Thank you so much for, for those that are already using the gifts that you've given them. And you give us opportunities within the church. You give us opportunities in our workplaces. You give us great opportunities at home with our families. And so, Lord, we pray that wherever you allow us to interact with people, that we would be mindful of the ways in which you have gifted us and that we would serve people in your name using those gifts. If you've made us hospitable, we pray that we'd show hospitality. If you've made us writers, we pray that we would write. 
If you've made us physicians, we pray that we would bind wounds and offer medical help. However you've gifted us, Lord, if you've gifted us with leadership, if you've gifted us with an ability to teach, if you've gifted us with a desire to come alongside others and encourage or help, whatever gift you've given to us, Lord, we pray that we would use it joyfully, not expecting that we're going to get it all right or that we're going to do everything perfect or that that we're going to be the best at whatever thing that you've called us to do. Your Son, Jesus Christ, is the best. You've just called us to be faithful. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be joyfully faithful and grateful to you that we have the opportunity to participate in your work of redemption. So, Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in this world. Thank you for using us as examples and mouthpieces. Thank you for giving us the privilege to be ambassadors. And we pray that our lives would point to your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom salvation is found. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your presence with us today. And we commit ourselves to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.